think how different my life could, would have been if God and His sovereignty, His mercy, and His grace didn't put me in a Christian home. Didn't put me in a home where my parents made me go to church. Didn't put me in a home that promoted holiness. Promoted Christ-likeness. That held the Bible as the absolute standard and truth for our life. I can't imagine how different my life would have possibly been if I wasn't brought up in a good Bible preaching church. I know I, I am so blessed to have parents in a church and a people that led me in the ways of Christ and yet I also know that sitting in the chairs before me are people that weren't that blessed per se but yet God's love still called your name and God's grace still found you where you were and no matter how you got to the cross if you're there we're all equal at the foot of the cross I'm so thankful that no matter how different we might be and our stories might be today, we can come into one place and worship the same God in spirit and in truth. And we've done that today. But it's not over. It's time for preaching, teaching of the word, and I hope you'll apply yourself to the scripture today as we continue our series entitled Partners in the Gospel, a verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Philippians. We're going to be reading out of Verses 19 through 30 of chapter 2. So find that in your Bible, and if for some reason you didn't bring your Bible, then we will have the verses on the screen. But I want to encourage, if you have your copy of God's Word, to really follow along in that. And if not, the screen can help you. Verse 19 through 30. The Bible says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him that as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. The subject of the message today is humility in real life. Let's pray together. Father, bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Cause it to make a difference no man can take credit for. Make us better today. Help us to love you more. In your most precious name I pray. Amen. 
Have you ever read something in your Bible? I know you super Christians haven't, but thought of this. But after reading something in your Bible and thought to yourself, why is that even in there? Again, super Christians, you're exempt. But for the rest of us, maybe you have anchored yourself to the truth. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is profitable. But then when you read that, you're thinking, how's that inspired? And how's that profitable? And why is that in there? And maybe you've thought about this. I certainly did when I looked upon verses 19 through 30. And I, I, I thought, man, these verses seem to be a bit of downer at first. I mean, no one's favorite verse or life verse is found in this passage, perhaps. And it's especially bland as you consider all the verses surrounding it. Paul opens the letter with a heart-stirring thanksgiving and prayer for, for these people at Philippi to be partners in the gospel. He proceeds with his inspiring testimony about how even in prison, he was able to advance the gospel. Then he moves on to that weighty exhortation where where he he exhorts the church of Philippi to live lives worthy of the the gospel and to stand fast in one spirit in the defense of the gospel. And that exhortation is followed by chapter 2 with a plea for unity that only comes through humility. And then he illustrates what that humble mindset looks like. As he shows the incarnation of Jesus, how he came from equality with God down to earth, even hung on a cross and bled for our sins. And Paul says, that's what you should be like. Unless you think you can't consider the fact that God is working in you, the desire and and the ability to do so. And as you work out what God is working in, you will be a grateful church, not a murmuring church. You'll be a gracious church, not a disputing church. And in turn, you'll glow for the gospel and you're guaranteed gladness. Now that's the last eight messages summed up. And you think, now we get to a travel log? A travel itinerary? I mean, can't we just skip this and go on to chapter 3 and learn how we can live in the power of Christ's resurrection? Or can't we skip on to chapter 4 and learn how we can know the peace that passeth all understanding? Well, we could, but in doing so, we would actually be skipping some very critical information. Or should I say it this way, we would be skipping some very inspired information. Because all scripture is equally inspired. God breathed, God orchestrated, God written. And it's all equally profitable. And so the golden question is this, why did Paul choose to put a travel itinerary in the middle of such a theologically rich book? Why did he seem to interrupt the sacred with the mundane? And why did he go from writing transformative material to seemingly informative material? Well, in order to find that out, we first have to Be good students of the Bible and understand why he wrote it to the church of Philippi in the first place. And here's where where my job has been hard the last couple of weeks. As a preacher who who is committed to expositional preaching, where I'm not going to skip portions of the Bible. Here's where where I've, I've had a difficulty. It's bridging the world of the Bible to the world of today. It's trying to convince you that there's actually a point in a travelogue. 
that there has some contemporary significance in these few verses for the church of fellowship. Just like the church at Philippi. And to understand that, we've got to dig in to why Philippi needed this and why they needed it in the middle of this rich letter. Ask two questions about the text. Number one, why is there a travel itinerary at all? Well, this probably is rather obvious, but communication was very important. You know, they didn't have Facebook or FaceTime. And Paul felt obligated to write a thank you letter of sorts to this church of Philippi that was funding him and the possibility of him staying in a prison house instead of a prison cell. A prison house in Rome would have been uh, kind of a normal house where, where he would be able to move around freely. He couldn't leave the house. He would be chained to a guard still, but he still had freedom to, to ride, and, and he still had food. And so long as he could pay that food and rent, he could stay in a more comfortable prison house instead of going to a very uncomfortable prison cell. Of course, he felt obligated to write this church an update and a thank you letter. And, and, and typically back in the day, in, in the Bible days, Paul would include these travelogues or, or these in, intentions of how he was going to get this letter to the church. And in that letter, he would not only say, this is how it's going to get there, but this is who's bringing it. And this is why I've chosen them to bring the letter and represent me. And so, so that's why he had to have a travel itinerary. Now, this travel itinerary was very different than Paul's normal travel itineraries because normally it was, it was guys like Timothy that, would send, uh, that Paul would send with his letters to the churches. But in this case, it couldn't be Timothy. And he was going to have to let them know of this dynamic that Timothy was going to come to your church, but it's going to be later than you expected. And in fact, I'm going to send back Epaphroditus. And I know Epaphroditus, you're expecting him to stay a lot longer with me. That's the guy who actually delivered the monetary gift to Paul, the money. And he says, I know you're expecting him to stay even longer than that and minister to my needs and represent you. But listen, I've got to send him back sooner than I thought. And let me explain to you why. And he began to explain to them first why Timothy couldn't come. And he said, listen, I'm in a very, very difficult spot in my personal ministry. I'm in prison. I'm awaiting a trial before Caesar's court, the highest court in the Roman Empire. I have no idea what's going to happen other than the fact that I'm going to stand boldly, unashamedly. I won't back down and I won't shut up. And that might mean my death. Or it might mean my release. Or it might mean a life sentence in prison. I'm not quite sure. All I know is that during this moment in my ministry, I need my most trusted ally. And that's my son in the faith. That's Timothy. He's been in the trenches with me. He says in this travel itinerary that, that, that Timothy was his most trusted ally because there was no one as like-minded as Timothy. In other words, he could look around and, and he could send this guy or this Roman believer or this Roman evangelist or this Roman missionary and he could send them. But he said, I just, I, 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 I can't trust them like I can trust Timothy. I need him with me because he thinks like me. He has the same heart as me for the gospel and for my churches and I can trust him. He's been in the trenches, he's faithful, he's proven, he's served with me in the gospel. I gotta have Timothy. You know what it's like to need your best friend. You know what it's like to need your spouse. You know what it's like when no one else will do but that person. And so Paul said, he's not coming, but I'm going to have to send Epaphroditus in his stead. And when Epaphroditus comes, listen, please, please don't think he flunked out. He represented you quite well. 
He was my companion. He was your messenger for me. He was my fellow soldier. And he called him his minister. That was a term that Paul only gave to apostles. That was a term of honor. And he wanted the church of Philippi to know, hey, he's done a good job. He's not coming back because he flunked out. He's coming back because I need Timothy. And on top of that, he almost died delivering this gift to me. You gave an offering at your church, and he almost died delivering it to my prison house. He is worthy of your honor. So when he comes, when he comes home, have a welcome home party. No, that's what I read. Hold him in reputation. That means value him. He's precious. He is a servant of God. He has served others' interests before his own. And you're thinking so. I don't see what's in it for us. I mean, we aren't waiting on Timothy. And we aren't really concerned about the health of Epaphroditus. We don't even know anybody by the name of Epaphroditus. No parent would be that cruel today to name their kid that. I understand what it meant then, but what does it mean now? And I would agree with you that on the surface, it doesn't seem like there's much significance to the church of fellowship. But don't forget that when there's a surface, it implies that there's always something beneath the surface. And so we need to dig a little deeper by asking a second question. Why is the travel itinerary in the middle of the book? Paul usually included these travel itineraries toward the end of his epistles. Why stick this one in the middle? Here's why. Listen. Because of how it fits perfectly within the flow of the letter up to this point. Now study the Bible with me. Do you remember the emphasis that Paul's put in chapters 1 and chapters 2 on partnering with the gospel and living lives worthy of the gospel both in the church um, among one another and outside of the church amidst persecution and suffering. And now Paul's going to write this travel itinerary so as to move from instructions and imperatives to living illustrations. And in the midst of a seemingly insignificant travel log, he provides concrete examples of what he's been talking about in the previous two chapters. Paul has already used himself as an example of partnering in the gospel, even while in prison. He's already used the example of Jesus serving the interests of others. And now he's going to contribute to his list of examples by adding two ordinary, everyday men who the church of Philippi would have been very familiar with, Timothy and Epaphroditus, both of which exhibit the qualities of those who live worthy of the gospel by serving others before themselves. Now to understand this, you've got to look how Paul links the humble qualities of Timothy and Epaphroditus intentionally with his teaching in chapters 1 and 2. I say intentionally because oftentimes Paul just put in his simple travel plans. But he commended Timothy, and he commended Epaphroditus, and this is a very long travel log. And so Paul did these things on purpose. Consider chapter 2 and verse 2. It says, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded. And what did he say of Timothy? That there was no other man but him that was like-minded. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Look not every man on his own things but every man also on the things of others. So he's trying to teach the Christians at Philippi, serve the interests of others before your own. That is true humility. And what did he say of Timothy later on in chapter 2 in this travelogue? That he serves the interests of others and the interests of Jesus Christ before himself. Are you Bible students following this? All right. Look at, uh, look at chapter number 2 
in verse, uh, no, look at chapter 1 and verse 27. He says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. He's teaching the Philippians this. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the what? And then he, he goes over in, in chapter 2, in, in verse number 22, he says that Timothy has served with me in the gospel. Do you see these links between what he's teaching the people at Philippi and, and now what he's commending Timothy for? Now, now go down further in chapter 2 and we're going to get to Epaphroditus and how he links Epaphroditus with the example of Christ. Look at verse number 7. But made himself of no reputation, talking about Jesus. Took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And then in chapter 25, he said this of Epaphroditus, he has ministered or served my wants, my needs in that moment. Look at chapter, or, or verse 8 of chapter 2. Talking about Jesus again, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And then he mentions in verse 26, and again in, in verse number 30, that Epaphroditus was nigh unto death. Are you getting this? Okay, look at verse number 9. He says, wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Meaning, when Jesus humbled himself, God exalted him after he humbled himself. And then what does Paul instruct the church of Philippi to do when Epaphroditus arrives back on the scene? Honor him. Exalt him. He's a servant of God. He's humbled himself for the gospel's sake and for your sake, representing you to me. Do you think these things are coincidences? Paul is taking the teaching that has taken place in the early part of the letter. Now he's giving them concrete examples of that teaching. And you might think, they've already been given two great examples, Paul and Jesus. Why do they need Timbo and Epaphro? Well, think about it. Paul was a super Christian to them. He was the founding pastor. He was the hero of the New Testament. He was the guy that used to persecute church churches and now he's building churches they they knew paul showed humility and served the interests of the gospel before his own while in prison but listen that's paul <laughs> he's the preacher we're normal people we go to work eight to five he's the preacher i mean he walks into the holy of holies every day right but what about jesus well that's jesus need i say more that's a great theological idea. And after, after they would have read that section in the letter, perhaps they would have went to the altar and said, Jesus, thank you for climbing down the ladder so as to serve my interests before your own. Man, thank you so much. And even in tears, been grateful, but never really put it together that I'm, I mean, I can't be like Jesus. So, so, so Paul's lifting himself up and he's lifting Jesus up. Why do they need Timbo and Epaphra? Well, maybe because they just needed to be able to see normal Every day, first century Christians, kind of like them, that were living out humility. No, imagine when they saw Epaphroditus return to them with this letter in his hand, Philippians. The letter we're preaching from today. And they looked down the aisle in the auditorium at Epaphroditus, and he, he's still very frail. And he hasn't gained all his weight back from being sick. 
And they're hearing these things about humility and treating each other with humility and serving the interests of others before their own. How in the world could they not put two and two together when they said that's the guy that did it in real life? And when, it, and when Timothy would eventually come to the church of Philippi and be a guest speaker and represent Paul on their behalf, knowing that he was like-minded, knowing that he was Paul's most trusted companion, knowing that he served the God, God's interest and, and others' interest and was faithful in the gospel, how could they not listen to Timothy preach and say, oh, that's what Paul was getting at. That is humility in real life. See, to Paul, teaching them about humility wasn't enough. He had to show them what it looked like. And it's here we, we, we begin to see beneath the surface and to see what Paul's intentions were with this travel itinerary. You see, one of the ways, listen closely, that is helpful in interpreting the intent of a portion of Scripture, especially one like we've looked at today, is to imagine in your mind what problems might go unaddressed had it not been written. Listen, when you look at something in the Bible and you think, why is that there? Then ask yourself this question in trying to interpret its purpose. What problem might go unaddressed or potentially develop if that's not in the canon of Scripture? And so a travelogue is tucked away in the middle of this book of the Bible, and so we have to ask ourselves, what problem might have developed or gone unaddressed in the church of Philippi if Paul would have left out verses 19 through 30 and just skipped to the power of Christ's resurrection? Or you could ask yourself this, how would have that affected, if he would have left it out, how would have that affected how the Philippian believers received the teaching that came before it? Would it be possible, listen, for the church of Philippi to agree with everything Paul says about Christian humility and then to go out and live just the opposite on Monday? Had they not seen ordinary, everyday guys exhibiting humility in real life? Had they not been given the examples of Epaphroditus and Timothy in this simple travelogue? And had it not been directly following the teaching on Christian humility, might they just think of Jesus' humility as a novel idea? As a theological teaching? Might they think of Paul's behavior in prison as some super Christian behavior that they can't attain to? Might not they, 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 they put together what Paul's doing and, 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 and think, you know what, that's a good idea. I'm going to scribble down some notes during that portion of the letter, that portion of the sermon. I might even go and thank God for what he did, but totally miss out on the fact that they're supposed to do the same thing. No, no, here's why. Listen, Paul put a travel log in the middle of a great book. Listen. Because he wanted to close the gap between what the Philippians believed and how they behaved. He didn't want humility to be some kind of good idea that caused them to simply say amen and, they're not, and nod their head in agreement. He wanted humility to be something they lived out in real life. And he wanted to teach us this truth. Humility is more than a good idea. It's a way of life. No, if the Philippians had trouble 
with finding congruence between what they said they believed and how they behaved. Would we at Fellowship Baptist have trouble with the same thing? Okay, let me get more specific. Is it possible that there's a gap between what you say amen to on Sunday and how you treat other people on Monday? Okay, let me get more specific if you've been here through this entire series. As I've preached the last four weeks on Christ-like humility, has it just been informative or transformative? Has it just been something you scribbled on a notepad, prayed about on an altar, and thought of as a good idea? Or has it actually become a way of life for you? Maybe you have some gaps in this area of humility. Gaps between what you believe about it and how you actually behave. Well, let's just put it like it is this morning. Maybe you have some areas of hypocrisy. When it comes to living in humility toward others, meaning you've clearly heard the last four weeks how it should be done and why it should be done, but you're not doing it. Since I'm under the same amount of authority of this text as you are, just because I preach doesn't mean I'm out from under the authority of the Bible, then let me be transparent with how I've fallen short the last four weeks. I won't give you every instance, and you, or else you wouldn't listen to me the rest of the message. You would know I'm a real life sinner, and I don't want you to think that. I will tell you of one. Do you remember the, le- the message I preached on climbing down the ladder of humility? And there was a ladder, and we used that, and we, we, we were all in, in awe of Christ's humility and his incarnation and crucifixion for us. And then I told the church, be like that. Have that same mind. And then on that following Monday, my wife, respectfully, kindly, in a composed way, graciously, because I, I, I promise you she's perfect. I, I, I want her to make a mistake. I'm waiting for her to make a mistake. But she's gotten really good at when she needs to address something in, in my life as a husband or a father she does so in a way that maximizes my potential for a good response. Makes it easy on me to respond in a humble way. And so she pointed out, just the Monday after I preached that message, she pointed out to the one who wrote the message, a very prideful, arrogant thing that had become a pattern in my life at home. None of you get to see it. You get to see the the polished shoes and the tie and the suit and all these things. You don't get to see the real me at home. But it's not as good as it is up here. That's not a joke. That's absolutely serious. It's not as good as it is up here. I try my best, but I I fall short. And my wife pointed out a not-so-humble trait of, of mine. You know why? Because she cares more about my holiness than my happiness. And so she promotes growth in my life. And God pointed that out to me. And it's almost like the Holy Spirit whispered in a not so subtle way. Hypocrite. You just preached a a message on coming down the ladder. And yet you go home and you climb up the ladder. Surely if the one that wrote the message has gaps, the one that listened to the message has gaps. Maybe the young person in here. 
who knows you should live in humility towards your parents. That is doing what they say and doing it in the right spirit. You know you should behave in humility even when you don't get your way. Yet there's a gap between how you know you, you should behave and how you really behave sometimes. And instead of humbly submitting to your parents even when you don't get your way, perhaps you roll your eyes. You give an exasperated gasp. You slam your door. You punch your wall. Or if you're more passive, you just lock yourself in your room and ignore your parents for three days. And you do opposite of what you know you should do. It's not that you're ignorant about it. You know. You know. But there's a gap between what you know and how you're living in humility. I'm thinking of the men in here who have the privilege of being a father and a husband. And you know, in, in being a father, men, we have a great privilege of being a, 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 an earthly picture to our children of what their heavenly father is to them. No, we'll never quite give them an accurate picture. But they can kind of see a glimpse sometimes if we're walking with Christ. And one of those aspects, one of those responsibilities that we have as a spiritual head of our home is, is to kind of be the one that shoulders the responsibility of discipline in our children. And maybe instead of going home after a long day and climbing down the ladder and helping your wife with the kids, you veg out on the couch, little Johnny does something he shouldn't do. Instead of you getting up, serving the interest of your wife and even your kid and loving them like they are but loving them too much to leave them that way you stay on your phone you stay on your computer keep watching the game and your wife while washing the dishes while cooking a meal while helping the the other daughter with the homework has to come downstairs and discipline the kid because you're sitting on the couch you thought this was just a travel itinerary this morning didn't you no all scripture's profitable And I'm thinking about the women in here who have the amazing privilege of being married to your man. At least you thought it was the day you got married, right? And you know the teaching in Paul's epistles about how a wife is certainly of equal value as the man. And, and, and God doesn't view the man as, as more significant than the woman. You know that. But he says your roles are different. And Paul puts it this way, and we don't like it in, in our century, but this is the Bible language that wives are to submit to their husbands. Now, hold on a second. I'm not saying you're, 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 a re, you're, you're like a mat where a husband can walk all over, and, 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 and you're just an object, and you're his property, and you can't even voice your opinion. Get, get real. That is not the Bible. You are equal in God's eyes. And most of the time, my wife's opinion is more valid than mine. But at the end of the day, the husband is the head of the home. God, God's structure anyway. And maybe instead of voicing your opinion humbly and in a composed way, you just come unglued. And you scream. And if you don't scream, is that not your personality? You give the silent treatment so as to manipulate him. And instead of being patient and loving and gracious, towards his repeated mistakes and failures, you berate him in front of the children. 
Now, how is that a picture of humility? No, you know how you should behave. You know. You know God's structure of the home. You know that, that, that to do what God is calling you to do as a mother and as a wife takes much humility. You know that, but there's a gap between what you know and what you do at home. And most of you will go to work tomorrow. And that means that you'll maybe be asked to do something that wasn't on your job description. And you'll not be asked to do it politely. You'll be asked to do it in a way that they just expect you to do it with no questions asked. And instead of just humbly, quietly, as hard as it is to submit to that unreasonable boss, you argue or you roll your eyes or you walk away exasperated. Or if not, you just go to the other workers and talk about how unreasonable your boss is. And say, I don't know why so-and-so is not doing their job and now i got to carry their weight. How's that a picture of Christ? How's that humble? How's that climbing down the ladder in humility for others? Well, I didn't know that my Christianity extended to my work life. Hello? Hey, Christian brother, Christian sister, how about when, when another brother or sister approaches you and confronts you? Now, pay attention here. And they say, hey, man, I love you. I love you enough to tell you not just what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. And we're close enough. I think you can trust me. There's some things going on. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think that's good to hang out with. I don't think that's a good place to go. I, I just see some, some patterns in your life that aren't healthy for you. I just want to see what's going on. Hey, I haven't seen you at church in a while. I haven't seen you at Bible study in a while. Hey, I, I don't see you real involved at church. What's going on? And instead of humbly just saying, you know what? You're a godsend. Thank you. You buck up. Get defensive. We all love the idea of keeping each other accountable, so as long as we're the one keeping the person accountable. But when our lack of, hum when, when, when our lack of Christ-likeness is pointed out, it's like we instantly want to ascend up the ladder instead of climb down. Is anybody with me? Yes, sir. Hmm. I'm a church member that works so faithfully week after week, giving of themselves, but yet keeps hearing of other people and other ministries getting recognized and thanked. And in their mind, they're, they're not responding with humility and saying, I, I'm doing this for Christ and I'm going to keep plowing forward because it's for his glory and for his kingdom. Instead, they just entertain thoughts in their mind about quitting and stepping aside. If for no other reason, the pastor will realize how big a hole I leave when I do. That's not Christ-like. No, there's a gap there. There's a gap there. This passage that seems so insignificant at first sure carries a heavy blow, doesn't it? Listening to the first third of my message, you probably thought, gee, me Christmas, what did I come to today? Now you know. And it's painfully difficult to recognize the giant chasm between who you think you are and who you really are as painful as it was for me at the foot of my bed when my wife pointed out that and the Holy Spirit said hypocrite wow how do you respond to that well I've got to use an example as I close 
that is outside of our text. An example of a king named David who exploited other people for his own benefit. It started with an adulterous affair with Bathsheba and it led to the murder of Uriah. Try to cover up his sin. And so the prophet, the preacher, Nathan, came to him and kind of started a, a little short story. He's very wise in his confrontation. He didn't want to cause David to get defensive right off the bat and just lamb blast him with his sins. So he gave him this short parable of how a, a man came and exploited the sheep of another shepherd. The livestock, livestock of another owner. And David got irate. And it makes sense, right? He was a shepherd. And so he, he thought, you know what? You don't take advantage of another man's sheep. He works for that. That is his livelihood. And you know what David said back to Nathan? Kill that man. That man ought to be put to death. I can imagine he's red in the face. And then Nathan said those probing words next. Thou art the man. What just happened? Nathan set before David his own hypocrisy. And David was introduced to the gap between who he thought he was and who he really was. And what did he do? He wrote a song. And in that song, Psalm 51, it says this. Put it up there, Tammy. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. If the Holy Spirit is showing you a gap in your life today, a gap of humility, where it doesn't carry out past these walls, then the only proper response is to recognize it, confess it, and repent of it. And to say to God, God, my sin is ever before me. And I'm sorry. And here's the great thing. Though it's so, that gap is, is so painfully wide sometimes, God's grace is enough to close it. Do you hear me? God's grace is enough to close it. So what does this travelogue do for us? Well, God meets us through this travelogue at the intersection of who you think you are and who you really are. And then he whispers to us, fix it. Fix it. Don't walk out of church with a gap this size. Close it. Close it. Narrow the gap. God, I'm sorry. God, what I've said amen to on Sunday didn't translate into the workplace on Monday. And I know I'm your light. I know I'm salt. And you're relying on me to take my faith to my workplace. I'm sorry. God, what I heard on Sunday, and I even took notes to on Sunday, it didn't follow me home. Even on Sunday afternoon in the car ride, even towards the waitress at the Sunday meal. It's like I'm this person in church, but I go out there and... and I'm just a gigantic sinner. Welcome to the club. Close the gap today. You might not close it completely, but get one step closer. And say, God, help me to be humble. But not just humble. Humble in real life. 
humble in real life. Stand to your feet, every head bowed, every eye closed. Father.